Let's pray before we go into God's Word. Father, we recognize that you are perfect in all your ways, that you lack nothing. You don't need us. You, along with the Son and the Spirit, are complete and filled with joy in your own communion, yet you have seen fit to create us in your image. And though we are, we would have gladly spit in your face, you adopted us as your family. And through Jesus, you have redeemed us. In him we have been granted all that we need to live our lives before you as your holy people set apart. So God, we pray this morning that you'd protect each one of us from that slow slide of, of conformity to sin. and uh, We pray that you'd protect your church from, from the attractiveness of the false doctrines that are around us. Keep us pure from corruption that is in the world. And may the glory and excellency of Christ be, be proven through us, your church, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and read God's word. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Amen. This is God's Word. You may be seated. So last week we saw that Peter emphasized kind of the blessedness of being a Christian. uh, And I tried to connect the dots between the benefits that we have and the source of those benefits, which is Christ. This passage really follows in very much the same lines. Uh, Peter here uses this word, granted, Twice in this, in this, uh, these two verses, uh, and the source of the things granted, these gifts, is once again Christ. The gifts of Christ are, of course, uh, wonderful. They cause us delight. They cause us to rejoice. Uh, but also in this passage, there's a certain solemnity to Peter's enunciation of these gifts because they come in the context of defending against false teaching. I have this kind of picture in my mind of this gift of maybe a gorgeous, you know, a number of a few hundred years ago, a gorgeous suit of armor, and maybe, you know, an engraved sword, something beautiful that's been in the hands of many heroic warriors, and these gifts are bestowed upon this young man, perhaps by his father, because the call to arms has been issued, and he's got to go out. And these gifts are wonderful, but there's this solemnity to them because we know the purpose that the gifts have, that they have a usefulness, and it's a weighty usefulness. So in this text, Peter describes two priceless gifts that Christ has granted to his people, and they are, like that suit of armor, more than pleasant ideas or encouraging platitudes, they are expected to be put to use by the believer. They are to be used and uh, to strengthen us. 
And they are truths which arm the Christian against a very real threat, the threat of false teaching. We may find that terminology, false teaching, kind of Christianese, sort of this hollow uh, use of language, false teaching. Maybe it doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but we should find this threat of false teaching more than hollow Christianese. It should be pointed out that false teaching is responsible for the damnation of many thousands. And not only that, but it does echo through the halls of many even well-intentioned Christian churches every Sunday. And this is a serpent which can creep into any church, including our own. So God places these words in our hearing this morning, and I pray that we let our roots sink deep into the truths of the words that Peter has given to us this morning, recognizing that those winds of false teaching will blow over those who do not have deep roots. And I pray that through the reminder that we have this morning of these glorious gifts, we will grow more and more as trees planted by streams of water which yield their fruit in season and their leaf does not wither. So with that said, again, there's two gifts, two things that have been granted to us. The first gift is all things, all things through the knowledge of Christ. Beginning of verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. I think people are naturally overcome with a sense of lack, that I need something. And so we're always trying to find something. We're always in pursuit of whatever it is that we lack. Peter says here, however, that all we need to live a life which is pleasing to God, life and godliness, is granted to us in Christ. As Paul says in Colossians, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul also says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, that is Christ, was manifested in the flesh. So the fullness of all that we need to live out this life before God is bound up in Christ. It's all in Him. The false teacher wishes to inject doubt into the Christian who finds his all in all in Christ. You need a little something more. You need pleasure. You need to light up your senses. You need more than what you have. Peter describes in chapter 2 the false teachers as people who entice unsteady souls. He says of them, For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. So they would draw us away from the fullness that is Christ and in reality diminish His perfection by attempting to add to it. Now we can't say, I don't think for sure, what this heresy is that Peter's addressing in Second Peter. Uh, in all likelihood, it was probably some Christianized amalgamation of Hellenistic or even Jewish philosophy. Um, and I think as much as we would like to put things in neat boxes and define exactly what the heresy is, I'm not sure that's possible here. Uh, but I think one good suggestion is that Peter is defending the church in, against a form of Epicureanism. Now, this was a naturalistic uh, Greek philosophy that taught 
basically pleasure is the highest good pleasure is the highest thing that we can attain um, and epicureanism is more refined than just hedonism hedonism would kind of just say you know party up as hard as you can as long as you can uh, epicureanism is more refined it would teach us to kind of beware of the consequences pursue the highest form of pleasure that you can and the pursuit and attainment of desire is good but it must be tempered by prudence but nevertheless in that philosophy it is desire which fills the role of arbiter between good and evil <clears throat> and that's a lot like our naturalistic philosophies that we see today you know after all if there's no god if it's just naturalism if we are just kind of as one person said the output of what protoplasm does at this temperature uh, a fleshly sack of stardust what else really could surpass personal pleasure as the highest good there's nothing else if we live and we die nothing is more important than to make most of the time that we have so why deny yourself so well the false teachers of their day and our day would say you lack what you need to have a full and interesting life Peter reminds us all things that we need to have a full meaningful life pleasing before God have been granted to us we already have them in Christ so again we see the source of this fullness is in Christ here in the text uh, he says in verse 3 his divine power his is Christ's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence so i kind of doubt very much if these teachers these false teachers were in the church if they were pure naturalists at least on the face you know they wouldn't have just said there's no god so there's no supernatural eat drink tomorrow you die uh, i don't think Heresy is, is more subtle than that. False teaching doesn't really attack with a frontal assault. It creeps into the church and subtly undermines the truth uh, through subterfuge. So more likely what Peter is dealing with is what we might encounter. Kind of a lip service to God, but actions really demonstrate that there's more important things to be expected and experienced from life. Just live a little. Make boundaries, sure, but try not to be a prude. God made you with passions and desires. Don't deny God's creative hand in your life. Or, or God would not want you to be unhappy. But Peter says, no, the source of all things is that divine power of Jesus, which means we lack nothing. And that means implicitly, and I think this is Peter's primary point here, is we've been given everything we need to live and to pursue godliness in Christ. I think sometimes we suppose that we are stuck in our sin, that we will never make an inch of progress, that we'll never succeed in conquering even a tiny slice of our sin. And I think that's not a true sentiment, um, Actually, it is for some people, Peter says, that it is true of the false teachers. In chapter 2, verse 19, he says, They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. 
for whatever overcomes a person to that he's enslaved. So the false teachers fall in that category. But for the true saint, that's not the case. We will see more in a moment. We are not slaves to corruption. We are given everything we need to live a life which is pleasing to God. Not perfectly, of course. I don't hear what I'm saying and kind of lose heart because you're struggling with one sin or another. You know, these things take time and the struggle is slower and harder than we would like. But truly, and I think we can take heart in this, that we can and will, by the divine power of Jesus, make progress in the pursuit of righteousness. The means through which Jesus granted us these things is knowledge, the knowledge of him who calls us. Kind of thinking Trinitarianly, the Father is usually the calling party, uh, but not always. Jesus is said to have called people as well, and I think most commentators agree. Peter is talking about Jesus. Contextually, this his emphasis has been on knowing Christ. And certainly Peter was keenly aware of the calling ministry of Christ as Peter called him away from the nets to be a fisher of men, right? And Jesus even told he and the other disciples at one point, you did not choose me, I chose you. And this calling is not the general call, kind of broadcast at large to the world, but the specific effectual calling of the saints. It's a call to not just knowledge, as we talked about last week, but true saving knowledge of Christ. And this is the means of His giving us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It's that intimate, personal knowledge of Jesus, which is the thing that bears fruit in us as we are united to the vine. Calvin says rightly that this knowledge is God's making Himself known to us by the gospel. So it's saving knowledge, it's gospel knowledge. The gospel is that saving knowledge of Jesus, and it is the source of the fruit that we produce as members of the vine. Just like Paul says in Colossians again, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Since the day he heard that they believe the gospel, is the context, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So that true personal righteousness is always the fruit of the gospel. We have to keep things in order. And the gospel will produce fruit in a regenerate person. So sanctification is really a pure grace of God. I've been enjoying the the larger catechism lately. It has a lot of fullness to it. And it asks in question 75, What is sanctification? Sanctification is a work of God's grace, whereby they whom God hath before the foundation of the world, chosen to be holy, are in time, through the powerful operation of the Spirit, applying the death and resurrection of Christ unto them, renewed in their whole man after the image of God, having the seeds of repentance unto life and all other saving graces put into their hearts. And those graces so stirred up, increased and strengthened as that they more and more die to sin and rise 
unto newness of life. So it is God, it is the grace of God which produces the fruit of grace in the true believers. And I say true believers because there's false believers and thus there's false righteousness. Paul says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So there's this category of people who go this whole life with a dogged zeal for God, chasing hard after righteousness and holiness, but don't know Jesus. We must know Him. We, and it's this knowledge is granted us by divine power. So I think Peter's purpose here is not so much to push us to labor harder after righteousness, nor necessarily to say, get to know Jesus better, though both of those would be good exhortations. Rather, he's encouraging the true saint that in Christ all has already been granted. It's already in our possession. And if something's already in the palm of your hand, you don't need to keep searching for it. Uh, unfortunately, we do from time to time or regularly keep searching. We continually search for just a little something more, just something more to add. All the while, all things have been granted to us. And this ultimately, Peter says, is to his own glory and excellence. To his own glory and excellence. So uh, it's true that Christ has called us unto his own glory and excellence, but I believe it's a in better interpretation here to say that he's called us by or according to his own glory and excellence. And thus, if that's the case, then his glory and excellence are kind of the ultimate source of the things granted to us. We can sort of trace the flow through the sequence of events, from Christ's glory and excellence, compelling Him to call us, and is calling us effectually via His divine power to saving knowledge. And by that, He has granted us all things pertaining to life and godliness. So I kind of think of it like a river. A river might have its source in a lake, and then further up is the streams and glaciers, and at the peak, there's a snow-capped peak that's feeding all of this. That snow-capped peak is the glory and excellence, that honor of Christ. So we really should marvel at this. We should stand back and look at the peak and marvel at it. That the source of our salvation is in the glory and excellency of Christ. This this great King who's conquered all, put all enemies under His feet, self-sufficient in every way, glory and excellence abounding, that we get to be the outcome of who Jesus is, the product of His glory displayed in the world. That's that's wonderful. That's astounding. It also inspires a lot of confidence in us because no one, not even ourselves, can hinder our growth in grace. False teachers won't have their way with us. We will not be enslaved to sin because we know Christ. He has called us unto Himself and His glory, that peak, will not be tarnished. He has granted us all things and He will accomplish what He started in us. The second thing here that He has granted us is a, a, a portion in the divine nature through His promises. Divine nature through promises. Verse 4 
by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So that first line, by which he has granted us, granted to us his precious and very great promises. So by which, that is to say, by his glory and excellence. I thought at first by which referred to our knowledge, but the, the uh, pronoun is plural and it's modifying the glory and excellency of Christ. So once again, we kind of see that peak, the source of our blessedness, kind of flowing down the other side of the mountain. On the one side, it all rushes down to the fullness of all things, of life and godliness. And on the other side, it feeds into the river of God's promises, which flows down into the stream of our escaping the corruption of the world. So this phrase, become partakers of the divine nature. Uh, that's one that could easily cause us to start you know, raising the red flag in our brain. Um, and I think before we get into that, and we will, we should look at these promises a little bit more, the nature and, and source of the promises of God. Um, the verb tense in the Greek for he has granted is one which expresses an action that occurred in the past and has continuing results into the present. It's the perfect tense. And so that means that the source of these promises, the granting of these promises, is something, an event that happened in the past that we experience the effects today. Now, Peter doesn't define exactly what these promises are. He leaves it a little bit ambiguous. And surely we could include all the promises of God as each one finds its greatest and most precious fulfillment in Christ. Uh, Peter does use the term promise in this book in chapter 3, three times, and it's all referring to eschatological promises. The second coming of Jesus, uh, the arrival of the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, Those promises are still future to be fulfilled, but there's a very real sense in which Jesus has already won them by his cross work and his resurrection and ascension. Um, I don't know, perhaps Peter is thinking here of what his master Jesus told him that he was going to send the helper, and the helper is the promise, or perhaps it's that Jesus told him, Lo, even I am with you, even to the end of the age. Uh, we don't know the precise promises Peter has in mind, but he calls them precious and very great, as are all the promises of God. And they have been, once again, granted to us, given to us, We don't need to go searching them out. We have them in our possession by the glory and excellency of Christ. (coughs) Peter describes the purpose Jesus planned out in granting us these promises. He says, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. So let's get back into that. What does that mean, partakers of the divine nature? You know, has Peter become a Mormon suddenly? Eventually we'll all become gods, or maybe he's a pantheist now. We're all a god just a little bit. We're all part of the universe, so we're all a little piece of the divine. Sometimes I play horsey with my kids, you know, walk, crawl around on my hands and knees, and they ride on my back. And 
I think there's a, a sense in which you could say, I'm taking on the attributes of a horse when I do that. We might say, I'm partaking in the equine nature. <laughs> that does not make me a horse. I'm simply sharing in the same characteristics of a horse. I think similarly, and you tell me afterwards if I'm stepping into heresy here, but I think it's true. Similarly, because Peter says we become partakers of the divine nature, that does not mean we are in some way or even in small measure divine. Rather, we share in some of the characteristics of God, and particularly here, the moral characteristics of God. Uh, Commentator Gene L. Green says, Peter's thought has to do with moral transformation and not divinization or becoming divine men, as sometimes has been argued. Peter's reflection is not principally about becoming immortal and incorruptible, but rather about the acquisition of moral character. It's interesting, the word divine is rarely used of God in the Bible. Occasionally it is, or in the New Testament. Peter uses it here twice in these two verses. And some people speculate he's kind of going on common ground with his audience. Uh, And one commentator cites numerous examples of ancient writers, Greek and Jew both, that kind of talk about somebody taking on a characteristic of God or of the gods, and they're said to have uh, partaken in the divine nature. So maybe this idea to us is a little strange, but perhaps to them they wouldn't have thought anything of it. All of that to say, through the promises of Christ granted to us, we may now share in the divine nature which has primarily to do with righteousness. As we can see at the end of verse 4, he defines that for us. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So in Peter's mind, the, the avenue by which we become partakers of the divine nature is escape from worldly nature. Uh, conversely, he describes the false teachers as slaves of corruption. He said they promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. I think that kind of brings us back around to those claims of the naturalistic Epicurean philosophers we saw earlier. And the claim is, access your freedom by fulfilling your desires. Be free. If it makes you happy, just do it. As long as it's not hurting anyone... Do what makes you feel good. Freedom is found in letting go of your inhibitions and just being you. And that These are said to offer freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. But for the redeemed, we are truly free because he says we have escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of desire. Just as James says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So this worldly corruption of desire no longer has its teeth in the Christian. And thus we become partakers of the divine nature. And this is true because of the promises God has granted to us. And these promises were granted to us by Christ out of his own glory and excellence. So here's the message as I see it from these two verses. If you know Christ, it is possible 
even expected that we live a righteous life before God. We know, Christ, it is possible and even expected that we live a righteous life before God. Of course, once again, not a perfect one, as we'll see next time. This is a lifelong progression, not an instant fix. But we can live as the holy, set-apart people that we are. I hear statements, and I fall into this myself regularly, that seem to suggest we can't do good at all. Even as believers, we can't do anything to please our Heavenly Father. We're just totally corrupt. And I think that this text makes plain to me in Second Peter that that is a mistaken notion. While we cannot achieve any meritorious righteousness, that is righteousness which earns us something before the face of God, we can progressively grow in a righteousness which accords with and proceeds from who we have been made to be in Christ. And, and of course, make no mistake, hear me rightly, even this righteousness, this personal righteousness, is one which proceeds entirely from the grace and the glory and the excellence of Christ. He has granted us the promises. He has granted us the knowledge. And thus we truly possess all that pertains to life and godliness. And we really are partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world. So I leave you with this encouragement. Is I think there's a deep longing in the heart of every Christian. And the more older we get and the more mature we get, the stronger this gets to be rid of of worldly corruption. We all want to be holy. We want to progress in righteousness. And we, in Christ, have all that we need to be holy, happy people, to stand firm against false teachings, and to live lives which are pleasing to God because we have been granted saving knowledge of Jesus and we've been granted all of His promises. So take heart in the struggle against sin. And it is His glory and His excellence that is at stake in our sanctification. So He won't let it be tarnished. I'm going to close with a prayer I sometimes like to do from the Valley of Vision. This one's called Crucifixion and Resurrection. O Lord, I marvel that Thou shouldest become incarnate, be crucified, dead, and buried. The sepulchre calls forth my adorning wonder, for it is empty, and thou art risen. The fourfold gospel attests it. The living witnesses prove it. My heart experience knows it. Give me to die with thee that I may raise to new life, for I wish to be as dead and buried to sin, selfishness to the world, that I might not hear the voice of the charmer and might be delivered from his lusts. O Lord, there is much ill about me. Crucify it. Much flesh within me. Mortify it. Purge me from selfishness, the fear of men, the love of approbation, the shame of being thought old-fashioned, the desire to be cultivated or modern. Let me reckon my old life dead because of crucifixion and never feed it as a living thing. Grant me to stand with my dying Savior, to be content to be rejected, to be willing to take up on popular truths and to hold fast despised teachings until death. Help me to be resolute and Christ-contained, 
Never let me wander from the path of obedience to thy will. Strengthen me for the battles ahead. Give me courage for all the trials and grace for our for all the joys. Help me to be ho- a holy, happy person, free from every wrong desire, from everything contrary to thy mind. Grant me more and more of the resurrection life. May it rule me. May I walk in its power and be strengthened through its influence. Amen.